Hey, this is Todd Herman, host of The Todd Herman Show. You might have heard me on Rush Limbaugh's show. I was a regular fill-in for about eight years. I now do a show out of the high mountains of free America because, you know, I got exiled from Seattle. Google Gemini correctly predicts the present day. Mind control matrix. The internet, television, even our phones wouldn't just be distractions, but tools used to manipulate the masses and suppress critical thinking. I said that correctly. Check out The Todd Herman Show every day on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And we're glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch for Thursday. Jim is actually not here yet again. He'll be here tomorrow. David French of National Review is here for Jim. David, good to be with you again. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been quite a couple of weeks here for David. We'll talk a little bit more about that in uh, just a moment. As uh, many of you know, if you follow him on social media, he's actually in his final days here at uh, National Review and is heading over to a new uh, publication, online publication, The Dispatch, uh, very, very soon. Uh, As you also know, David is a huge NBA fan, and I'm guessing this has not been his favorite NBA preseason, given everything we've been talking (laughs) about in the uh, past few days, particularly the NBA's kowtowing to China. And we've obviously had lots of bads, lots of crazies in the last few days about how the league has responded, how LeBron has responded, how Steph Curry and Steve Kerr have responded, on and on and on. But we actually have a good twist on this today for the NBA because, believe it or not, there are actually people of courage who play in the National Basketball Association. One of them is a native of Turkey. His name is Enes Kanter. He's been in the league for a number of years now. I believe he's in his late 20s. He's now with the Boston Celtics, which makes this story even more interesting. But uh, he can't leave the country. He can't go back to his home in Turkey because he's been critical of President Erdogan. He's been a supporter of the exiled Muslim cleric Gulen, who is actually in the United States. And so as a result, his family is being persecuted. And if he were ever to try to go back to Turkey, he certainly would be persecuted. Cantor recently spoke in front of the Massachusetts State House, And here's part of what he said about what his family is going through because of his political beliefs. I remember just because of I talk about these issues, um, they were harassing my family in Turkey. And, you know, I remember it was three years ago, uh, my, my dad uh, got fired from his job. He was a genetic professor. My sister went to medical school for six years. Now she cannot find a job because of the last name. And just, be, just because of my family members keep getting fired, my family had to put a statement out there and said, we are disowning Ennis. So I remember going to practice that day, look, looking at my you know, teammates' face. It was one of the most awkward and one of the most. I was embarrassed because of all that statement. So, and uh, Turkish government didn't believe that. You know, they sent police to my house in Turkey and they raided the whole house. They took every electronics away, phones away, computers away, laptops away. They went to see if I am still in contact with my family or not, and if they would see any text message, any any missed calls, any emails, they will be all in trouble in jail. And that's just the uh, tip of the iceberg. Uh, he says the Turks tried to kidnap him when he was in Indonesia. He literally can't leave the country, and that means he can't even play if the Celtics are uh, scheduled to play in Toronto because that's in Canada. It's out of the country. He can't make the trip. Uh, Turkey's revoked his passport. There's an international arrest warrant for him, on and on and on. So, David, when uh, LeBron says the league had a rough week, uh, kind of pales in comparison to the uh, rough five years that Ennis Cantor has been through, uh, yet he's willing to speak out. Yeah, the interesting thing is uh, is that not only does Ennis Cantor speak out about the injustice in Turkey in spite of all of the Im- immense pressure that is put on him, 
Uh, as you said, I mean, I believe there's an Interpol red notice based on trumped up charges against him. Often when he heads to Canada, uh, American politicians and senators are, are write, will write letters on his behalf to implore Canadian officials to let him in and not to enforce the arrest warrant on him. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare situation. And when LeBron was speaking about China and calling out Daryl Morey for tweeting out support for the Hong Kong protesters, then Ennis uh, Kanner started subtweeting LeBron. Uh, with tweets like SMH, you know, shaking my head and, you know, the shrug emoji and then ended with a tweet where he basically just said, listed all the things that have happened to him and then said, freedom is not free. And that tweet went mega viral. Um, the intent was very clear to say that the defense of liberty is costly. It was interesting on a couple of levels because Ennis Cantor, I mean, if you follow basketball, uh, you'll, you, you know Ennis Cantor, and you know a couple of things about him. One, he's an incredible teammate, plays really hard, very good basketball player, uh, a key kind of uh, a key role player for uh, the teams he's been on, has a great offensive game, a weaker defensive game. But, you know, he's, he's known as a chemistry guy, a great guy to have on a team. But he's not LeBron James. I mean, this LeBron James is the Goliath of the league. He's the, you know, has been the best player in the league for more than a decade. He is the, he's one of the most powerful athletes in the world. And for Ennis Canner to kind of take him on like this is a bold move all by itself. There are good folks at the NBA. One of them is Ennis Cantor. Uh, I, one of them is Daryl Morey who treated, tweeted the original tweet that got so much flack. Um, and just incidentally, this is one of the reasons why I'm, I have a general no boycott stance I just don't like the boycott culture at all. Uh, and the reason is usually large institutions have a big mix of people in them. And uh, boycotts will often hurt your friends as well as those, you know, your ideological opponents. And this is one of the actual arguments against some of the boycotts that these big progressive companies have launched is that they often end up taking away jobs and economic opportunity to people who'd be otherwise ideologically aligned with them. A boycott is a very, very blunt instrument, whereas your public speeches can be a precision instrument. And so I, I tend to use the precision instrument rather than the blunt instrument. And one of the reasons is because I like people like Ennis Cantor and want to see them have a voice. So at a time when no one can find their tongue when it comes to uh, an issue that probably won't bring them much personal grief, as much as at least holding their tongue seems to have brought them personal grief. Yes. Um, uh, Ennis Cantor seems to be a refreshing change from that, and he's been doing it for yeah. a lot longer than two weeks. So, yes, exactly. He's been—I mean, he's a living example of courage in the face of oppression, and uh, you know, and also he's just—if you—you should follow him on, on on social media, not just for his his political courage, but he's a very funny guy, and he is known to troll his. Uh, including his much better uh, ba opponent, basketball opponents. And he is, no, he's tremendous. He's, re he's a good guy, and he's a really, really funny guy, too. All right, well, let's talk about some more good news, and that's 4Patriots, where you can find them at 4Patriots.com slash martini and find all the great deals, including getting a free solar panel with the purchase of the Patriot Power Generator 2000X. 
as we always say with four Patriots, you need to be prepared because you just don't know when the power is going to go out. The Patriot Power Generator 2000X worth its weight in gold because it has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run all the big appliances like your fridge, your freezer, and medical devices. comes with 12 outlets, including four AC, plus two USB-C outlets that can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Never needs gas, thanks to that solar panel. Fume-free, silent, and safe. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Visit 4Patriots.com slash martini to get your Patriot Power Generator 2000X with the free solar panel included. Plus, get free shipping on orders over $97. Save more and get peace of mind now by going to the number 4Patriots.com slash martini. That's 4Patriots.com slash martini. Well, Ennis Cantor has one approach to dealing with Erdogan. President Trump has a slightly different approach to dealing with Erdogan, and that's where we go to our bad martini today. Of course, David, we could go all the way back to uh, Trump's original statement from just a couple of weeks ago about how U.S. troops will be pulling back from northern Syria so the Turkish military can come in. It was very clear about what was going to happen once we did that. Uh, And now that the Turks have come in and it appears they've uh, committed human rights atrocities and ISIS fighters are now out of prison and we're not really even sure how many that includes. President Trump is perhaps starting to see um, the impact of this, although if you look at Wednesday's press conference, you might not think so, since he accused uh, the Kurds of being worse than ISIS for some reason. Uh, But now, yesterday evening, we got the release of President Trump's letter to President Erdogan, and it turns out that Trump's official correspondence looks a lot like his tweets, David. Uh, Mr. President, he says, let's work out a good deal. You don't want to be responsible for slaughtering thousands of people, and I don't want to be responsible for destroying the Turkish economy. And I will. I've already given you a little sample with respect to Pastor Brunson. Then he's got a paragraph there about how the Kurds are willing to negotiate. He can probably get more concessions than he would have before. He's enclosing a letter from the Kurds. And then he says, history will look upon you favorably if you get this done the right way and humane way. It will look upon you forever as the devil if good things don't happen. Don't be a tough guy. Don't be a fool. I'll call you later. Sincerely, Donald J. Trump. So uh, apparently this got wadded up and thrown in the trash can just hours before Mike Pence and uh, I think Mike Pompeo is with them, uh, made the trip to Turkey to try and uh, broker a ceasefire there. Uh, David, what do you make of this latest twist in this story? Well, I don't ever want to hear another Trump supporter again say it's just tweets. This is how he is. (laughs) This is how he is. And this is how he is even in international diplomacy. Here's what's really um, what people should really focus in on. It's not just that this was an unprofessional letter, an unprofessional blustering letter that should have never gone out from in in any correspondence from a president of the United States. It's that if you look at the date on it, it was October 9th. October 9th was at the very beginning of this crisis. Turkey ignored it. As you said, they put it in the bin, as the BBC called it, put it in the trash. And on October 11th, not only had they ignored it, they actually, American troops came under fire from Turkish positions on October 11th with artillery shells falling near an American base. A couple of days later, American helicopters and F-15s had to be used to intimidate and deter Turkish-backed forces from overrunning an American base while before Americans could fully evacuate. And then we had to destroy the base. We bombed the base to keep it from falling into and being useful to Turkish forces. I mean, this is, he blustered and Erdogan just ignored it. Erdogan just slapped us in the face. And so here we are now with ISIS prisoners escaping. 
literal Russian media and mercenaries giving the Russian public guided tours on television of an American base that they now occupy and Americans bombing their own gear to keep it from falling into the hands, uh, Turkish hands. I mean, and, and the Turk and our Kurdish allies already scrambling to form an alliance with Russia and Syria. I mean, this is this is one of the worst foreign policy fiascos that I have seen in my adult lifetime. I mean, it's it's up there with some of the dreadful mistakes and operations of the past that we've seen. I've been wondering who is going to call Trump's bluff, because we have now seen many times that Trump will engage in very blustery rhetoric which kind of alarm people like people were alarmed in 2017 when Trump was calling out Kim Jong-un as little rocket man and threatening to rain down fire and fury. Uh, he's, you know, said we're locked and loaded towards Iran and, but you know, nothing comes of it often, thankfully, because these threats are just irresponsible. But I've been wondering how, who's going to call the bluff on the Trump threats because you can only threaten and not deliver anything for so long before people have your number. And it turns out that it's Turkey's President Erdogan that has called the bluff. Um, Trump threatens and does nothing. And so Erdogan does what he wants. And what he wants is creating a real problem for American national security, for American uh, alliances, for American standing in not just in the region, but in the world. I mean, this is this is a terrible outcome. And David, this is one of the few things we've seen a tremendous amount of bipartisan agreement on. There was a House resolution yeah. voted on Wednesday. I think it was about three, I don't know, remember what the exact number was. I think it was about 60 people who voted against it to condemn what uh, is happening there and condemn the, the president's policy on it. So it's very lopsided, 300 plus easily. Uh, not happy with the pres- what the president's doing here. But I want to get your thoughts real briefly on, on some of the few who are very much in favor of what the president's doing here, namely folks like Rand Paul and, and Tulsi Gabbard and maybe a couple of others. Their point is, and the president's point has been the same thing, and that's that, look, we teamed up with the Kurds to fight ISIS. We think ISIS is defeated. How long are we supposed to stay there since there was never congressional authorization for this in the first place? What's the rebuttal to that? Okay, well, a couple of things. One, while the caliphate is in ruins, ISIS is still in existence and has thousands of fighters. So there's an ongoing counterinsurgency campaign against ISIS. But I agree, we don't want to stay in northern Syria forever. But And I agree with some of those who say this is a really complicated situation. Uh, But their way that you resolve the complicated situation is you finish the job against ISIS and then you, you negotiate between the relevant parties and exit so that it's done in an orderly way that protects your national interests, that keeps ISIS under control and uh, doesn't abandon your allies. You don't just after a weekend conversation with the Turkish president, just skedaddle on out of there, abandoning your allies, giving ISIS a preve, giving Russia a victory and showing your weakness for the whole world. There's a way to deal with this that is not this course of action. And, you know, a situation can be very complicated as this is. And at the same time, a response to that complication, a complicated situation can be very simply wrong. I use this analogy in a Twitter thread. Imagine you have a patient that has had uh, a complicated illness and a lot of doctors have worked on the patient. Some of them have made mistakes, just like some people made mistakes Uh, in the run-up to our intervention in Syria. Some people have gotten it right in the way that our, so for example, the way our military campaign against the caliphate was very successful. 
but the patient is still sick. It's relatively stable, but it's still sick. And but in comes a doctor. We'll just call him Dr. Trump. And Dr. Trump is hates the medical establishment, takes a look at the very sick patient, but still stable and just pulls out her syringe and injects the patient with like pure Walter White meth. And the patient just goes into rapid and immediate decline. And it's no defense of the quackery to say, well, it was complicated. It was complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. But what President Trump did was simply wrong. This is not the way you do this. And I think the really just sudden, the sudden uh, and very dangerous, by the way, the sudden and very dangerous withdrawal resulting in airstrikes against our own bases um, is evidence that this was not done correctly. So, yeah, let's have a conversation about how you get out of Syria What's a sensible way to get out of Syria? But that's not this conversation. The surprise should be for other countries, not your own military uh, and their yeah. position in the country. I think that's at least the bottom line that everybody should be able to agree on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't. The American military should not be in bug out mode. Never, Let's just put it that way. Never, ever. All right. Let's move to our crazy martini now. And David, this seems pretty light fair compared to what we've been talking about with some of these other things here with respect to Turkey in a number of different ways. But uh, let's talk about Beto. Beto's always good for some comic relief. Uh, he was a little more subdued in the debate on Wednesday. Didn't want to necessarily ban anything new. Uh, didn't reiterate his uh, effort to wipe out tax-exempt status for churches and so forth. But uh, now he realizes he's got to up his game because he didn't get a lot of uh, publicity following the debate. So uh, he was on Morning Joe. I believe this was on Wednesday morning. And uh, Joe Scarborough wanted to follow up on how exactly he'd enforce this AR-15 ban if, in fact, people didn't want to voluntarily hand them in. At first, you're going to hear Beto just incredulous that people wouldn't do it. And then he actually admits what he would do if they didn't. Let's say I have an AR-15. I bought it legally five years ago. I'm a law-abiding citizen. You want to buy it back as president of the United States. I say no. Uh, You give me other incentives. I say no. I bought this legally. I'm keeping this. I live on a ranch. I need it for protection. What would you do then? First of all, I, I wouldn't concede the the point on following the law. I, I would, you know, don't know you well, Joe, but I would I know you well enough to expect you to, to follow the law, even if it's a law that you disagree with. I think it's one of the so, things that so distinguishes for, us so, 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 as so a country. We're, we're a country of laws. Let, okay, but let, let's just assume that there's a rancher in Texas that doesn't, that says, I'm not going to do this because this is an unjust law and it's unconstitutional. What's the next step? I think that's what we need to concede because there will be people that don't turn their guns back in. What's the next step for the the federal government there? Yeah, I I think just as in any law that is not followed uh, or flagrantly abused, there there have to be consequences uh, or or else there is no respect for for the law. So, you know, in that case, uh, I think there would be a, a visit by law enforcement to recover that firearm and to make sure that it is purchased, bought back, so that it cannot be potentially used against somebody else. So there you go. Police are going to confiscate (laughs) your weapons. But I also love the uh, Texas rancher straw man that Joe Scarborough throws out there as that's the only person who could possibly need an (laughs) AR-15. Well, right. I mean, uh, you know, look, I think there are millions of Democrats right now. Well, there are many Democrats who uh, agree with Beto. There are many, I, but it's a minority of Democrats. And there are many, many millions more Democrats who are basically screaming at him to shut up. 
<laughs> because he is a one man campaign commercial for Republicans. And, you know, the, the funny thing is like this, that the decline and fall of Beto O'Rourke could make a really uh, fascinating long form piece. But like this is a guy who was the media darling of all media darlings when he took on Ted Cruz. Then when he ran for president, the knock on him in the Democratic Party was that he wasn't quite progressive enough. This is Beto, not quite progressive enough. Then when he just sort of crashes and burns, what does he do? He sort of Leroy Jenkins his way into the far left quarters of the uh, progressive movement. Strip tax exemptions from churches. See, take your AR-15 and your AK-47. And if you're not going to consent to the buyback, well, here comes the sheriff. And he's like a caricature of a Democrat <laughs> in an NRA act. Like, you know, where Democrats would say, stop strawmanning us. And Beto is like straw man made flesh. It's really remarkable. It's one of the more spectacular and frankly, idiotic political falls in recent American history. He was one and a half points or so from beating Ted Cruz and being hailed as the future, one of the future stars of the Democratic Party. And now he's this. It's really remarkable, and it's a reminder that, yeah, nobody should ever believe their press clippings <laughs> because just watch out. Uh, pride can goeth before the fall. Uh, I remember it wasn't long ago that he was he was saying he was born to do this. Uh, doesn't look so much like it now, uh, but yeah, it's it's just kind of. I have no real concern that we are anywhere near passing a confiscatory. Uh, mandatory buyback gun control. I've no, I don't think that that is in the cards. And so he, Beto doesn't alarm me. He he's much more amuses me, but I can. But he alarms Democrats. Uh, he alarms Democrats because, as I said, he's he's the straw man made flesh. Exactly, and uh, it's unlikely to pass. Uh, and Democrats better hope it never does, because that would be a very dark time in our country. I think if it did. Yes, uh, uh, David. A uh, couple of quick transition uh, topics here before we wrap up the three martini lunch for the day. First of all, uh, a lot of attention today, not, not surprisingly, to the uh, somewhat sudden passing of Maryland Congressman Elijah Cummings, sixty-eight years old, uh, top Democrat for the last number of years on the House Oversight Committee, uh, civil rights figure, longtime congressman from Baltimore. And when you watch the, the oversight hearings, he certainly comes across as uh, a guy who's pretty partisan. But in looking at the tributes today, and even in looking at uh, some moments from hearings over the years, you can tell that he built up a lot of respect with some of his colleagues. In fact, one of the folks on the right most broken up today is Mark Meadows, who was the head of the Freedom Caucus. So um, while the, the the public persona uh, is, is one way, uh, this is a guy who seems to have uh, attracted a lot of personal respect, regardless of his political leanings. Yeah, I mean, that would, uh, I had no idea that he was that ill. Uh, so it was very shocking and sad to see his passing this morning. Um, I would urge everyone to read. Uh, Trey Gowdy has a Twitter thread about him that is really moving. And I'd urge everyone to read that. And, and it does remind you that as much as I do think the partisanship is breaking through into personal relationships in many ways on the Hill, I do think that there is a real breakdown in the kinds of friendships that used to happen. Uh, I'm hearing that from all kinds of sources uh, that it's just different than it used to be, but there are still some elements of the older collegiality, even 
in the face of bitter political differences. And you're seeing that, as you said, in, you know, in the Mark Meadows response and the Trey Gowdy response, that you know, there are, especially for some of these long-serving members who've served together and fought these wars for a long time, there is a not just sort of a, uh, a professional respect, there's a personal respect and, and often even personal affection. And I wish Americans would see that a little bit more. Uh, we kind of see only the WWE style um, dramatic camera confrontations um, and we don't see the rest. We don't see the humanity of these guys. Um, but and it's a, it's sad that it takes uh, a surprising and sudden death to see that humanity. It's a different level of sadness, but uh, some folks are sad to know that you're moving on from National Review. Uh, as we mentioned at the outset, uh, it's uh, your last couple of days here. You're moving on to the, the dispatch very shortly. I can't remember exactly how many years you've been with uh, National Review, but, uh, uh, David, it's been a pleasure certainly having you fill in for Jim here on the Three Martini Lunch. And I know a lot of folks have found uh, your writings on a wide variety of issues uh, to be very thought-provoking, very moving, uh, your personal travails during the 2016 campaign and beyond. A lot of folks know what you've been through on that front. So whether folks have agreed with you from issue to issue is one thing. I would certainly hope they uh, can never doubt your political courage uh, to engage in these ideological battles and otherwise. So, uh, David, it's been quite a ride. Well, thanks. Uh, It is a bittersweet because I love NR. Uh, I think my first NR piece was published in, I, I believe, 03, maybe 04, so a long time ago, and uh, I wrote hundreds of, of posts and pieces before I joined NR full-time in 2015. So I, I actually joined NR full. I was a contributing writer for uh, more than a decade before I became a full-time writer in 2015, the month before Trump came down the escalator. Uh, so I have <laughs> a, a ton of love uh, for NR and uh, a real excitement about joining my good friends Jonah Goldberg and Stephen Hayes over at the Dispatch. We're going to be doing some interesting and new stuff and some stuff that you don't really see, honestly, on the right side of the political spectrum in um, journalism and media or some stuff you maybe don't see enough of. So uh, I'm really excited about that. So I, as I said, it's bittersweet. I love NR. I love the folks at NR. I respect the heck out of Rich and Charlie and the leadership at NR. So it's bittersweet, but I am definitely looking forward to joining, you know, my good friends and soon to be uh, new colleagues, uh, Jonah Goldberg and Stephen Hayes and the team that they've assembled. Well, no doubt many folks will be looking for uh, your writings over there as well. Uh, so, again, David, it's been a pleasure uh, doing this with you on uh, a semi-regular basis in, in Jim's absence. Um, God bless you and, and Nancy and your family. And, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again soon before too long. I'd love that. I'd love that. Thanks so much. You bet. David French of National Review, soon to be the dispatch. In for Jim Garrity today. As I mentioned, Jim is back tomorrow. Uh, In the meantime, if you don't already, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. You can do that at Apple or iTunes or wherever is convenient for you. Leave us a nice five-star review, too, if you don't mind, especially if you actually love us. Uh, And don't forget, Jim will be back on Friday. And tune in then for the next Three Martini Lunch. Cartels are exploiting Indian reservations to get into America, and our federal government can't be bothered to stop it. Hey, y'all, it's Sarah Carter from The Sarah Carter Show. I just got back from two trips to our southern border, and I want to take you inside a huge hotspot where thousands of migrants are coming into America every day. I was with a member of the National Border Patrol Council when the Border Patrol nabbed 
multiple illegal migrants who were breaking U.S. law. And I have the exclusive audio. For all this and more, subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show on your favorite podcast app.